please, if you don't have a Bible today, raise your hand and let's get one to you. Uh, and then once you get them, open up your, your Bibles in your laps or your apps or whatever to Matthew chapter 18. So go ahead and take a look at that with me, if you would, please. We continue, of course, verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the word of God, which means that wherever we leave off the week before, we continue onward. And that, of course, includes today. <clears throat> we pick it up in verse 6 today. So read along with me, if you would, please. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, but woe to the man, that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than to have two hands or two feet and to be cast into everlasting fire. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Well, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. You pray with me, please. Lord, I just pray for this time. I pray that we would truly hear what you want to say. I pray that you would radically speak to us. And I pray that we would understand and know you better than we ever have. And that we will have a deeper appreciation for all facets of you, not just the parts, God, that we would rather cling to because they seem warm and fuzzy. The parts, Lord, that would challenge us to really choose sides like we should. So please, have your way now. We commit this time to you. We ask for you to do every in every minute of this. Do exactly what you want. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Come upon me, God, that you would do through me what only you can do. And that every one of us today would be radically touched by you. So have your way, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, as I would any, please, don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the Bible. Let the Bible be that which you test all things. But it is amazing how much we can cling to that we call truth because, for instance, the news taught us something. And, and I'm just learning this week more than ever. I mean, it's always been, I know it's always been slanted, but I'm just seeing it more than ever, just how imperative it is to look at everything through Scripture. Because, man, I just watch what happens when we get our truth from, from the news, for instance, and what that does to us. For nearly 4,000 years, 5,000 years, since the beginning of man, God has been 
making clear his redemption. The savior of fallen man. And he's presented himself in four very distinct ways throughout the Old Testament. Most of you are familiar with this. Because the clues that we put together to decide who this guy must be become seemingly reconcilable except for the fact that God's just big enough to fill them all. So 2 Samuel 7 and 8 teach us that he has to be the king over all, but Isaiah chapter 53 teaches us that he has to be servant under all. Genesis 3 begins to teach us right from then that he has to be fully man, but Ezekiel 34 teaches us that he has to be fully God. So fully God, fully man, fully servant under everyone, fully king over everyone. And then God commissions specific people with the particular limelight of basically presenting one of those cases. Matthew taking that of king over all. And so Jesus' birth linked in lineage to David, the greatest king prior. At his birth, exclusively kings or wise men from the east come to bow and give their gifts to this great child king. The term son of David used roughly 150% more than the rest of the New Testament. The term kingdom of heaven used 31 times in the entire Bible. And of the 31 times, the amount of times it's used in Matthew, 31 times. Even Jesus' ministry throughout where it shows his authority over everything from sickness to death to all of the forces of hell. Even at Jesus' death, his kingly robes, the thorny crown, the reed scepter, the title king of the Jews, all focused on, of course, in the Gospel of Matthew, presenting Jesus as the king over all. God had promised, and he knew this, back in the book of Deuteronomy, he says, when you ask for a king, not if, God knew that they would. In 1 Samuel 8.20, it becomes clear what the people were looking for in a king when they say, give us a king that we would be like all the other nations. Listen, that our king would judge us, that he'd go before us, and that he'd fight our battles. Three basic things the people were looking for in a king. A judge, a leader, and an avenger. The disciples that Jesus is dealing with are obsessed with that kingdom. But unfortunately for curious motives, they are driven by selfish ambition to be the greatest over everyone instead of the servant under everyone. And Jesus then calls our attention to the sublimity of a child, children, for which we were to learn from. And what comes clear in our text is that there's more than one. It isn't like there happens to be one token child there. There seems to be a lot of them. And Jesus calls this child and the child comes humbly, not hungry for honor. He comes without conditions or commands. And he comes to be held, not heroized. And Jesus says, no, you better learn from this. Because this is your entrance requirement. Not just what will make you great. But to be honest, this is what will actually even get you in. And we love to come as a hero, but unfortunately what that tells us is that we really have to come as a helpless child. We need a savior not a sidekick. And let me say that again. We need a savior, not a sidekick. Jesus is that savior, the hero, the avenger. And if he's to be that, then the role is filled and there's only two places left. That's the villain or that is the damsel in distress. There's only really two other places. There's no innocent bystanders in scripture. You're either one or the other. So what of them? You have to choose. In verses 6 through 9, we see the ones that tempt to wander, if you will, the villains. 
In verses 10 through 14, we see the tempted wanderer and God's care for the one in distress. So there really are only two different places to be, and you have to make your choice. Now, hear me on this as we get right into the text. We love to see Jesus as tough and avenger as long as he's avenging us. But what if we're the problem? What if we're the villain? Well, those verses are a little harder to swallow unless you're absolutely sure you're on the right side. So let me just say, choose your side today. Not just in ideal, not just in concept, but in lifestyle. Because today you're going to have to make that choice. Look at verse 6 again. But... Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Now, the idea of this, the word is scandalon. We get the word, or scandalizo. We get the word scandal from it. It means to trip up. It's actually rather simple. And he looks here and understands Jesus takes this very seriously. And he says, whoever is actually going to be responsible to trip up a child. Now, notice he doesn't just say a child, but notice he says in verse 6, one of that tells us that there have to be several there. But he also says, one of these little ones who believe in me. That tells us that this is so much more than just someone who's just a kid. But a little child who believes in Jesus. Believes in me, Jesus says. Now we even know this in our own culture. That the crimes that are committed, the most stringent law is applied to those who hurt children. If somebody were to cause damage to an adult and someone was to cause the same damage to a child, the punishment almost always is infinitely greater for those who have harmed a child than those who have harmed an adult. And understand God has that idea here because a child is vulnerable. And because of that, in need of protection. Now understand, God's heart is really simple. It is only twofold to draw you close and close and close and closer to him. And that he use you to draw others close and close and closer to him. Everything, every choice God makes, every move God makes, is governed by those two things. God wants you close to him. And he wants to use you to draw others close to him. Unfortunately, man's mindset is pretty much the opposite. We keep putting things in between him that he has to keep moving out of the way. And then we keep putting things in front of others that trip them up. Of these little ones, then, that tells us, since it's plural, that there are some kids around there and they seem to be following Jesus and they seem to be believing in him for which we are to learn from. But I love the fact he doesn't just say these little ones, but one of them, which tells us that God takes special notice to every one of these. You could be a child here in this room, and God knows your name, and he has his eye on you, and he takes it seriously. And his response then to this, understand, is pretty rough. I almost hear it like this, coming from Chicago. And it would be better if you took a millstone and put it around his neck, gave him a millstone medallion, and then tossed him in the sea. But do you realize this is a threat from God? What God says is, you would have been better to have someone kill you 
then they have to have me then stand before me. And this is the side we don't necessarily like to think of God, but we really need to. Because it's the side that shows that Jesus can be harsh, can be tough, can be rough. As a matter of fact, what it tells us all the way back in Exodus 15, when Moses got an understanding of who God is, he said, the Lord is a man of war. Wow, who likes to grab a hold of that? Isaiah takes the same idea in Isaiah 42:13 when he says that the Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. Psalm 24, 8 says, who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Now understand, this is imperative if you recognize that the focus he's been making is on a father. Because it'll say in a moment, this verse that we look and go, what? All of his angels stand before the father in heaven, in heaven, who is in heaven. You get this idea that the father is the one we're looking at. But understand those, I'm talking to you fathers for a moment here, and those fathers to be, because we've got a couple fits, if you will, fathers in training. You know part of your responsibility as a father is to protect your children. And the greater might your children see in you, the greater peace they have in your household. If they do not believe you have the power to protect them, they will never feel safe and they will not thrive. The responsibility as a pastor, and I mean a pastor, not the pastor, because there are a couple here, by the way, is to be someone like a shepherd that protects the sheep. That's part of what shepherds do. And if the sheep can't be safe, they can't thrive either. Healthy sheep reproduce. Scared sheep just quiver. So when we read that God is a man of war here, that the Father hasn't a problem with us, and Jesus doesn't have a problem, as long as you're one of those that are in his fold, this is a great place to be, and that's not a threatening place to see him. As a matter of fact, God's going to use the word twice here. Notice, woe. And this is where I need your help for a second. The term, by the way, is a term, in the Greek, by the way. And the reason I say that is, is it's a term of grief, anguish, or pain. So get out of the world for a minute and pull your minds out of any possible gutter. I need your help, dear, because we have many cultures represented. You know, there's certain terms, by the way, when we talk about animal noises. And it's kind of fun to compare friends from China and say, what noise does a, a cockerel, a rooster, make? And then you ask somebody from France, and then you ask somebody from America, what noise does such a thing make? And it's interesting how different those can be. Well, the same thing happens, for instance, if you drop something on your toe. Now, again, no cuss words here. But what would you say? If you were like, you know, you were walking by and you stubbed your toe, and you're like, ah! What would be the sound you make? Help me out here. Maureen, what would you make? What sound? Ouch. Ouch. Okay, ouch. That's a pretty American thing, too, as well. Uh, And what about you want? Ah, on, on a good day, he'll say, ah, otherwise the other can't tell us. How about you, Hugo? What would you say? I, I, how about you? I, yeah, I, because uh, it's French, like, I, but it sounds, I, yeah, right? There's a little bit more, right? I, yeah, and you get this, right? You, you watch Deborah, right? When somebody's like frustrated, she's like, I, 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 there's this noise, right? Okay, how about the, hung- what's the Hungarian ouch? Yai, yai, okay, now you get this. Gina, can you give us three? A day. Okay, wow, you got to really hurt yourself there. A day. Portuguese, anything? Can you give me a Portuguese? Ah, yeah, okay. 
Okay, we get that. Is there, am I missing anything? Can you can, I mean, there's a few others, of course. Okay, Chinese. Aya? Aya! That kind of? Okay, I get it. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. No, I'm not getting everybody, but I'm getting the idea here that, that, that there's different sounds. Why is this sound in, in, the, in the Koine Greek? So when God says, you know, why, whoa, what is going on? like, ah! Aya! So imagine God's going, to the world, and to the man. Because there's the idea. We might go, ooh, ouch, to the world. Ooh, ouch, to the man. That means a little bit more to me than whoa, because I think of whoa more as, you know, well, two ones. But I get the kind of stopping the horse whoa, and then I get coming from Chicago originally, the kind of like when you just can't sing and you can't say words anymore, you just go, whoa, whoa. Well, there's that, too. But the idea here, what he's saying, now listen, God's telling us something, and that is that he takes the safety of his children very seriously. So he goes, listen, you guys better be aware of the fact how seriously I take tripping up a child that believes in me. Don't you be messing with my family. So we're going to see here in a moment how that plays out, but let's just kind of play this out for a second and we'll get back into our text. Let's just go to kind of much more of an earthly example. Let's imagine for just a moment that there is someone out there, and they are like super buff, and they run a dojo. And their dojo trains the Navy SEALs, they train the Mashav, and they train the SAS. They train the kind of Delta Forces from all over the world. Are you really, do you really want to mess with that guy's family? Because even if he doesn't come at you, and his students do, He's got, a, he's got a plethora of students. You don't want to mess with any of them. You would be out of your mind as long as you knew that he cared for his children. Does that make sense? Now, that's going to play out here in a second. But I remind you, as we kind of dig into this a little bit, understand, again, verses 6 through 9, it's like, woe to the tempter that would make others wander. And then in verses 10 to 14, let me talk about those who are tempted to wander. So he says it would be better. And you can imagine it's like, oh, you mess with the guy that's the dojo runner that uh, teaches all of those, you know, special force guys. You mess with the wrong guy. It would have been better if you'd have been drowned in the sea, buddy. And that's what God is saying to these people. Now, again, you want to stand against God. You think you've gotten away with it sooner or later. Let's be honest. Scripture makes clear every one of us is going to stand before him. And the question is, what side are you going to be on? I don't even want to be close to that. Do you? I mean, I know from where I come from, because there was a lot of gang activity, that one of the most dangerous things to be is just near a person that you know someone's gunning for. Because you could even be part of that just by being near it. And I've had friends that were gunned down simply because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time because they were easily mistaken for someone else that clearly someone had a vendetta against. Now, the reason I say that is, is that when God starts speaking about the things that do trip you up, God's going to say, you want to get out and away from this as much as possible. You do not want to appear to be part of this when this whole thing comes down. And notice what he says in verse 7. Woe, there's our word, ayah, ayah, ooh, ouch, whatever your term is, to the world because of the offenses, because of how they trip up, because they must come. That tells us, by the way, 
that the offenses are going to come, and that is the trajectory of the world. But it also says then, woe to the man by whom these offenses come. What that tells me is that there are two things that basically are going to trip up new believers. Children in Christ. Now you could be 75 years old chronologically and still be a baby in Christ. Because Jesus makes clear, you have to be born again and nobody is born an old man. And every woman here can say hallelujah. God puts them a little bit smaller so that at least most people don't die in the process. There are two basic offenders now, in the world, by the way, John makes clear in 1 John 2.16 tells us that there are only three ingredients to the world system. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Interesting. Three things. What you see, that's the lust of the eyes. The flesh, what you'd run to. And then the pride of life, which you'd set your hands to to make yourself look so awesome. 1 John 5.19 tells us the entire world is, hear me, hear me, under the sway It's under the influence of the wicked one. It does not say under the ownership of or under the landlordship of. All that the enemy can do is influence. This is not his property. This is God's property. And understand there is a day where God's going to take it back. That's the whole book of Revelation. But what I find interesting is, in one case, if you want to become more like the world, you're going to find yourself tripped up. You can't have a good walk and be tripped up. Because what you'll be driven by is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life making you number one. But the other thing is the person who does the tripping. Woe to that man. You know, what's interesting is in both of those cases, one thing that they do have in common is that they're both reserved for fire. Did you notice that? God has an appointment for the man of wickedness and for the world itself for fire. Peter actually makes this really clear. Peter will tell us, by the way, in Second Peter, that not only the earth, but even the elements will melt in the fervent heat. And God is going to take this thing and he is going to wrap it up in a really huge way. That's Second Peter 3, verses 10 through 12. As a matter of fact, he tells us this, an interesting thing. People talk about global warming and such. You know, we've been talking about all that kind of stuff, by the way, since God wrote Scripture. Uh, and it's, it's about time that the uh, scientists caught up. But in Isaiah 24:20, it tells us, listen, the earth will reel to and fro, stumble about like a drunkard. It appears as if what will happen is the earth will be actually be knocked off its axis. And instead of the earth rotating, it will actually wobble. You can only imagine what will happen as a result of that. It will totter like a hut. And Jesus says this. You need to recognize, if you really want to trip up those that I love, those that are mine, you are messing with the wrong person. Now, please hear me. We can stumble people in a lot of ways. We can stumble them with rumors. We can stumble them with pride. We can stumble them with cynicism. We can stumble them with bitterness. Not just things that look like obvious sins. We can take a person who's accepting Christ, who's, again, tender and vulnerable, and lead them into anywhere other than a place where it's just you and Jesus. Every Christian needs to start their whole life and end it, by the way, with just you and Jesus. Everything else that gets added is at best periphery, but if you get anything in between you and Jesus, it's going to trip you up. And there's our problem. 
So someone says, oh, you're a Christian now. Well, let me add this. So you get Jesus plus. Jesus plus you have to be baptized into our church. Jesus plus you have to go through this program. Jesus plus our specific doctrinal bend. Jesus plus this particular gift that we think should be manifest more than any other in the church. Jesus plus our club, our elitist thing. Jesus plus. you got to hate those people if you're going to be a real Christian. Jesus plus. Especially when those other people, they say, are Christians. Where do you stand on the end times? And all of a sudden, you're taking the focus off of Jesus. Hey, if the enemy can't get you just to slay you, he'll start by trying to sway you, and then he'll get to stray you. That's kind of how that works. Because all he has to do is get you to turn your head a little bit. And that's kind of the way it works. The world itself, we read, by the way, in Romans 8, groans. As a matter of fact, God says, all creation groans. The world is aching for its redemption. Because right now, the sin that has infiltrated this world is what's tearing the world apart. But when God speaks about the man, I want you to recognize There are two things God makes crystal clear are his. I mean, there are many things. He'll talk about all the earth is his and the fullness thereof. But please understand, there's two things. The first in Isaiah 43, verse 1, God says he created. He speaks of Israel, but ultimately in a broader sense to us as well. But now, thus says the Lord God, or the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by by your name. You are Mine. Notice in the route to that final statement is the term redeemed. The redemption, which means to be bought back or ransomed, took place ultimately for us at the cross of Jesus Christ, where we, as slaves of our sin and guilty because of it, were redeemed from the debt of our guilt at the cross. And at that point, you have the choice of letting God say yes to pay your price. Or no. If you say yes to the gift of Jesus, he has set you free, paid your price, and you've been redeemed. For which then God could say, you are mine. But also, in Deuteronomy 32:35, God says, vengeance is mine. I will recompense. Put those two things together. You are mine And vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It is God's job to avenge his own. And if we see how big and awesome, concerned and assertive God is, we actually can rest at night because we can really trust it's his job to do. As long as we are confident we are on the right side. How far will I go not to trip up? How far will you go not to trip up? I mean, let's face it. Even a small trip is embarrassing in front of others. But a big fall? You've probably heard about the whole Pokemon Go thing where people have fallen into the Grand Canyon. It's kind of hard to miss the Grand Canyon. It's not like a sinkhole. It's like the size of a burrow. And people are going, oh, what's this? Ah, I think I found. You know, well, you're finding a lot more than that at the moment. A large fall is lethal 
It's fatal. And if we get this concept, beloved, then I get why he speaks in verses 8 and 9. Because he tells us here. Now notice, by the way, verse 7 was woe to the man. In verse 9, then, he speaks about men. And in between that, he talks about hands and feet and eyes that cause you to sin. Understand here, this isn't the first time Jesus said this. Back in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, he talked about your hands and eyes, your right hand and your right eye, in regards to being led astray into adultery. But one thing's for sure, your eye and your hand and your foot do not have a mind of their own. You have a choice to make with your feet and with your hands and with your eyes. And let's be honest, some people, they have a little bit greater control than others. But there's certain people, they have nervous hands. And have you ever noticed this? You're talking to them and all of a sudden they're pulling a leaf off of a plant. They don't even recognize it. They're just kind of doing something. They're sticking a pencil in their friend's ear. And then like, well, what's this? I mean, they just have this natural inclination about them. But the moment they become aware of it, well, that's when you start to see where their heart really is because it's like either their, their face tells it stop or they try to pretend like they didn't know what they were doing and they go back to it and you recognize the brain's got a problem here. And there are times where you know what this is like. You can walk out of a space and you know you're going the wrong way somewhere. You're realizing like, what am I doing? And then you turn around. Cities I'm really good with. For whatever reason, cities, I feel like I have a natural bearings. Don't put me in a mall or in a country road. I feel like country roads are places where you just get lost and people eat you. I mean, that's I'm obviously a city boy. But a mall, I could walk into a store and I could walk back out and I'll go back the way I came and go, wow, these stores all look like the ones I've been to. Not even realizing that I'm going the wrong direction. But once I realize that I'm going the wrong direction, part of me goes, okay, let's turn your end and go the other way. So there is this issue where your hands can do something wrong, but you catch it and then you stop. And your feet can lead you, if you will, in the wrong direction, but in that you stop. And you can look at something and go, oh, I wish I hadn't seen that. And then you can kind of decide to look away. I get that. But the question is, is that if we really need to what Jesus brought us before and after that, he's talking about people that are tripping people. I get it. Because the question is, who in my life would lead me to look where I shouldn't be looking. Because even if they do that inadvertently, somewhere down the line I have to make a choice whether I'm going to follow that, whether I'm going to start investing in that or not. Who is leading my hands to do stuff that really are not right? Well, who's helping lead me to places with my feet that I know are not right? Because understand, God just said, I remind you, it have been better if you drowned than you stand before me like this. And then he's looking and saying, so who's doing that in your life? How close do you want to be to someone like that if that's where God has it? Now, notice there's twofold a response. It isn't just cut it off. It's cut it off and fling it from you. And let's be honest, that's harsh. But God says there's two options, too. Either you enter into life or you enter into eternal flames. On one side, there is life. And on the other side, there is despondent hopelessness. On the other side, there is wrath. And God says, well, wait a minute. Before we talk even eternity for a second, what about now? What's keeping you right now from life? I mean, life here, where Jesus really is everything, because when Jesus is everything, then life becomes 
Well, then that's the product. I start asking, well, what's, what's, what in my life, what things do I need to really cut off? And I'll be honest, for me, and I'm just being honest with you, the news is one of those things I just really can't spend a lot of time in. Now, not because I don't want to be informed, because I'm so tired of people spinning things in a way that only foster my hatred about things I can't do much about. And I want to make sure that my mind is focusing on the good news first so that I can look through the lens of that at whatever information I get so that I can do something proper with it. Or what's going to happen is I will get dragged into the temporary and forget about the eternal. But I'm not telling you that has to be your thing, but I'm just telling you I want to make changes in my life too. Because I don't want anything to lead my feet or my hands or my eyes in a place where I will follow when really it's getting in between me and Jesus. And he looks and he says, how far are you willing to go to really enter into life? Are you really serious about this? Or again, is Jesus the Savior or is he the sidekick? Because as a sidekick, you just kind of make those choices yourself. So then we go back into our last verses here, starting in verse 10. And he says, and notice, by the way, I want to read those verses again, verses 8 and 9. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life, lame or maimed, rather than to have two hands or feet and be cast into everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than to have two and to be cast into hellfire. Hey, one interesting thing, by the way, too, those very same people who are leading you in those wrong places, do you know what they'll call you if you actually do cut it off from them like you should? They'll call you lame. They'll call you, think about it, they'll call you weak. They'll call you blind. Like a person with one leg or one arm or one eye. You need to recognize when you're cutting that off, they actually think they're your hand or your eye or your foot because if you pull them out of your life, they're actually going to say that. Now, I'm not telling you if you're married, you need to divorce someone. I'm not telling you if your children are causing some problems that you need to cut them off. What I am saying, though, is that you need to put things in their proper place. But you and I know when it's just somebody that we actually can do that with or even more so things in our life that we know should not, should not be a part of our life. Because what Jesus is saying is, is judgment is coming, and it starts with the house of the Lord, by the way. And judgment is coming, and you want to really choose your side before that time comes. So then he says this then in verse 10, Take heed, and the term take heed, orajo, means to stare at. I want you to be constantly attentive that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father in heaven. And you go, what? What does that mean? Well, when we come to a text that's a little bit more confusing, if you will, or less clear, the first thing we do is we set boundaries according to Scripture, what it couldn't mean, or what the Bible makes clear is possible option. So we look at angels. And can I just say again, don't just believe me. But let me just say that angels seem to serve three basic purposes. They pronounce. Genesis 16, Tachgar. Genesis 19, as Abraham is spoken to about Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 22, 
about to Abraham, of course, to stop him from slaying his son. The burning bush in Exodus 3. Gideon in Judges 6. Samson's mom in Judges 13. Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Zephaniah, who seems to have uh, listed at least 19 different times that God mentions angels interacting with him. Uh, Mary, of course, and Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. God knows how to get a message, but then the term angelos means messenger. I get that. So they pronounce. They also seem to protect. In Exodus 14.19, it tells us that the angel of God uh, went before the camp of Israel. He went before and behind them to guard them. In Exodus 23, God says, I'll send my angel before you, and actually ultimately to drive out the enemies. In Daniel 3, we read of the three Hebrew boys, but then a fourth. In Daniel 6, we read of the lion's den, and God says, we read, God sent his angel in Psalm 34, verse 7, it says, An angel or the angel of the Lord encamps around all those who fear him and delivers them. From which, of course, you see the whole concept of a guardian angel. That in Psalm 91, 11, where we speak of Jesus and it says he'll send his angel to guard over you to make sure you don't dash your foot against a stone. And so we get this idea that with this text that there are these angels that seem to protect. The third thing they do, though, is they perform vengeance. It tells us in Psalm 78:49 about Egypt, it says he cast them in the fierceness of his anger, wrath and indignation and trouble by sending angels of destruction among them. That, by the way, looked like the plagues. First Kings 19, we read about an angel, one angel that goes against 185,000 Assyrian army men, soldiers, and takes them all down. One angel, 185,000 men. Angel 1, 185,000 soldiers, nothing. We see that listed in Isaiah 3, verse 7. I'm sorry, 37, I'm sorry. In Second Chronicles 32. We see in Second Samuel 24, of course, the angel pronouncing or acting on judgment and vengeance on uh, God's wrath that stops at Jerusalem at the threshing floor of Arnon. But this we better be clear on. Because, of course, we could look, of course, at the book of Revelation and really go off on what God can have angels do. They're not to be worshipped. Colossians chapter 2, verse 18 tells us, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and the worship of angels, intruding into the things they've not seen, vainly puffed up by their fleshly mind. Uh, and please understand that. They're not to be worshipped. We don't read people having to call upon them. We actually read that there are others who decide that what they want to do is just curse demons all day. Uh, Jude, by the way, and I suggest it's a small book. It's one chapter. It says that people who do such things are actually ill-informed at best. Because you don't want to be messing with that. Let God handle that. But put this together for a second with the simple concept that we read in Hebrews 1.14 that angels are spirits that God, at least in regards to the ones that serve him in heaven, that they are spirits that are created for the purpose of serving those that would inherit salvation. So put yourself into this position again of a child. Because remember, it says they always stand before the Father in heaven. Not just God in heaven and not just the boss in heaven, but the Father. And you're his child. And as you are the child of the greatest king of all the universe, he has at his disposal whatever he wants to help serve and take care of you. Whatever it's responsible to protect you, that's the Father's job. And he can deploy whatever he wants for those purposes. There's the beauty in it. So if the Lord wanted to send an angel and have him speak through a donkey, he could do that. 
If the Lord wanted to have somebody just give him a message to speak to you directly, he could do that. If the Lord wanted to just rain on your groovy because you were heading into something bad and God stopped it, he could do that. God is unlimited in his resources. He could even use the enemy against himself. And he's so smart, of course, he does. The only time he ever gives the enemy any lengthy chain is because he's, God is so smart, he knows that the enemy will actually, whatever he tries to do, will actually backfire on him. So the whole point is simple. Do you really want to mess with one of the children of God? Because if you want to mess with one of the children of God, where are you going with this? God has at his disposal even angels. And I remind you, one of them grabs Satan by the neck and throws him in the bottomless pit. We don't even read that he has a name. Another particular one, by the way, we read, of course, again, slays 185,000 men from, from Assyria. And the point is that Jesus even says, hey, listen, as Peter tries to rescue him, don't you realize I could call down 12 legions of angels? They're at my disposal. And the whole point is now, well, what do we need to know about angels to better get this? Because understand, we're not the one responsible for them. That's the father's job. It's another one of his tools for whatever he wants to do to take care of us. That's what scripture says. The point is you don't want to mess with somebody that God has that at his disposal. Then the inevitable question is, well, why would he use angels and why doesn't he step in personally? Why doesn't God just go in there and whoop it himself? You know why? Because if God could send an invis- if you will, an invisible emissary for that purpose, then he can still be approachable. Because what God doesn't want to do is slay the enemy, but rather convert them to his side. And if God were to go in to do such a thing, they would never come to him. But if God could send such a one, they could ultimately say, what am I doing? This is bad. I'm clearly on the wrong side of this and go to the right side. And what God really wants is for the enemy as well to convert. Now, we know that Satan will never convert. We know the flesh will never convert. But we also know that many people will. And sometimes what it takes for that is for them to lose bad. And God knows what to send. And I don't know what he's using on you. But I can tell you, again, the most important thing to God is your relationship with him. For you to draw closer and closer to him. And then to be used to draw others closer to him. That's everything. Everything else is at best periphery. So so please hear me as we go through our last few verses. God's whole heart in this is be careful that you don't start dissing God's children. Because if you start dissing his children, God knows he he is unlimited in his resources for his vengeance. Verse 11, because for... The Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. So why not seek? We know that from the other ver- from the other Gospels where it says the Son of Man has come to seek and save. Because here the point is a God that is actually avenging, not a God that's just kind of chasing. But we see that, though, in their next verses. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, doesn't he leave the ninety-nine, go to the mountains, seek the one that is straying? Oh, please hear me. Sheep are butterfly chasers. Easily distracted, mindlessly follow this shiny thing until they forget their way back and they're completely lost. And shepherds know that. But I've learned this about my Jesus. He may let me stray, but he will never let me go. And just like a dumb sheep, 
the shiny thing that flitters about that's colorful may catch my eye and even lead me. And I remind you here, a butterfly is not necessarily a bad thing. The irony of it is a butterfly is no real great, and hear me on this, no real great threat to a sheep. It isn't like a sheep ever looks and goes, oh, that's the killer butterfly. You know, the butterfly of vengeance. It's just something cute that catches his eye or her eye that they start just to veer off. Now, and understand this. God doesn't want this for you. God doesn't want you in a place where you're wandering away from this because the moment you head out of the flock, you head out of a safe place. Now, understand there are those that intentionally pull you out of a flock, and those, by the way, are predators. Because a flock, there's safety in that number. But the moment that a predator can veer you out, can sway you out, can, can tempt you out from that, well, then you're vulnerable again. And that's a, now, that means that either the predator is the one doing it or someone is doing it aimlessly, but in essence, working for the predator, not even aware of it. Because the moment they can get that sheep away, whether they're doing it intentionally or not, it puts them in a place now where they're vulnerable and they're open then to a predator's teeth. But notice in this, by the way, Jesus says that Jesus doesn't lose. He goes, any decent shepherd out there knows when even one of a hundred is gone. Don't miss that. Any decent shepherd will know when one of it, one of, even of a hundred is gone. Now, he doesn't bail on the other ones because it tells us, by the way, even when David, who had some sheep, in First Samuel 17, 20, that when he went to go take care of his brothers to bring supplies, that it actually tells us there that, the, um, that he left the sheep with a keeper. You don't have one person watching sheep. How do you surround sheep with one person? You have a whole stack of people. But what's the interesting thing about this is notice here, though, now we're not talking vengeance. Remember, we've moved from the vengeance where he sends his angels to where it says that the lost one, he actually goes himself. Do you see the difference? Because the shepherd himself actually cares that much for his sheep that he's not just going to go, hey, you, sheepdog, go get that thing. You know, he's actually going to go. And notice, by the way, he even goes up into the mountains, which tells us this sheep has wandered far. You don't run your sheep through, through rocky terrain like that because not a lot of grass grows up in rocky mountain areas. You put it down in valleys because that's where there's brooks and that's where there's grass for them to eat. So the idea is this thing's far away. And it says, look at you guys, watch the rest of the sheep. I need to go after the one. Now the shepherd's doing this, not just the hireling, the shepherd, because there's a difference here is the shepherd really cares that much for a sheep and he goes he knows when one's gone and notice it says when one strays which tells us that that sheep made the choice to go out it wasn't like it was just you know oh where am i maybe it did in the sense it followed that that butterfly whatever that thing is and i don't know what your butterflies are i can tell you a few of mine but i can tell you this that he goes sooner or later you make the choice and you're you're and now you're like now how do i even get back and all of a sudden the shepherd goes and says look i'm going to go i'm going after you but then notice it says that when he finds the one, he rejoices more over the one than the 99. And all of a sudden I go, well, then it would be, wouldn't it be just better to be the one that strays? Except that God already made that clear. In Isaiah 53, 6, it says, every one of us like sheep have gone astray. See, here's the important thing. Is that nobody just stays. I saw some guy with a shirt on today that says, not everyone who wanders is lost, or not all who wander are lost. But all who are wandering, all who wander, are aimless. 
That's the point. You don't wander if you have some place to go. In Psalm 119, 176, it says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. Pray, I don't forget your commandments. And Jesus tells us then, don't chase off my sheep. Because first of all, you're not going to win because I'm going after him. And second, you're going to have to deal with me because of it. Hear that. If I'm willing to be one of his sheep, he knows where I am at at all moments. And he is not going to let me go far. And even if I try to go far, he is going to come and say, don't you want to come back now? Aren't you tired of wandering? Aren't you tired? And understand, you know this. You can wander and still come to church every Sunday. You can wander by just making it Jesus plus when it used to be just you and Jesus. And you could take good things and make them bad things by putting them in the wrong place. A hammer is a good thing when you're building a house. It's a bad thing when you're actually chasing your friends. So it ends with this verse. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Now, contrary to what some might try to tell you in their particular doctrinal bends, I have to give you a couple verses here. And one of them, by the way, is 1 Timothy 2, 4. Hear this verse. It says, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Understand, there is not a human being God wants in hell. In 2 Peter 3.9, we read, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackers or slackness, but he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. When we walk through Camden, come in Garden, or wherever it is that the Lord has placed you, no matter who you look at, God wants them saved. He wants them his. He's done the price. He's paid the price. So hear me as we bring this to close. God wants everyone rescued. And there's, our per- there's the whole point. The term we see here is that it is not the will of your Father in heaven that any one of these should perish. But God wants them all saved. Sozo. We know the word, but think about what it means to be saved. To be saved means you were in a position where you needed to be rescued, right? You don't have to save someone who's not in trouble. And God wants you saved, and he wants your family saved. He wants your friends saved more than you do. He tells us in John 8, 34, that whoever sins is a slave to it. In Isaiah 59, 2, it says that your iniquities have separated you between God, you and God. And in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. That's what we need to be saved from. We've put ourselves in a hostage situation for which then Jesus must be the ransom. Romans 3, 25, Hebrews 2, 7, 1 John 2, 2 and 4, 10 tell us that Jesus is the propitiation. Elasmus, it means ransom payment. It tells us, by the way, in that verse, 1 
Timothy 2.4. And I'll read the following two verses. Again, he desires all men to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth, because there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, one God and one mediator, who gave himself as a ransom for all. A ransom not for some, not for the church, not for the elect, but a ransom for all. And here's my question as we pray now. What about you? Are you tired of chasing butterflies as a Christian? Are you tired of making it convoluted when you know it used to be so beautiful and pure? It's time to come home. Time to stop wandering. It's time to actually heed the voice of the shepherd and stop living a life that's just stumbling around because you know that God has more for you than that. And my prayer is, if you are somebody today who has accepted Jesus Christ, that we would let God eradicate from us anything that would be the hand or the foot or the eye that would lead us to stumble. You know, you can stumble someone with your foot. You can stumble someone with your hand. You've got to do it intentionally. You can even stumble someone with your eye. All you have to do is get them to look at something while they're walking and get them unaware of what's in front of them. You ever watch anyone walk into a pole because they're texting? I mean, these days, you know, we have, we have bike lanes. But don't you realize, sooner or later on the pavement, we're going to need, like, text lanes? You know, where people can actually just walk and not be as concerned about what they run into. It just keeps soft things beside it. Maybe in that, we learn a little, but then we get back to it and we do it again. You can trip with your foot, your hand, or your eye. And what if God cut those things off and flung them from us? Would we hate him for it? Because you know the only reason he does this is because he loves us. And he wants it to be back to just us and him. But if you're not sure you've ever really said yes to Jesus, you need to make that choice today. Come and join the right camp. Come be adopted by the Father. Where he has unlimited resources to keep you safe and draw you close and make you great in him. Man, please hear me. This is his heart we're talking about, not just his mind. And if you've been if you've been wandering, can I just say, he misses you. He misses you because he never stopped caring, and he knew your name and he knew when you left. And he's coming after you. And maybe that's someone you know that needs perhaps to be used by God. You need God. So God wants to use you to send you there, to clothe himself in you, to bring him home. Will you pray with me? God, I want to thank you so much for this text. I want to thank you for what you've done in this time. And I pray today, Lord, for every believer, myself included, first for us, God, that you would let every part of our hearts be completely yours. Please. And whatever is bringing us to do what we shouldn't, and we, of course, we still claim responsibility because even if there is that temptation, we can still say no. Or lead us where we shouldn't be or look at what we shouldn't be looking at. 
we give you permission to cut and cast as need be. But you tell us that we should do that. Not just let you. So I pray for the courage that will be necessary. That today, here in this room, you would change that our hearts, God, from a wandering heart that's quick to chase butterflies to one that keeps our eyes on the shepherd where it's safe. Where it's back to just us and you. But as we make the choices that are necessary, and as you put things in our heart that we know we need to make choices in, I pray today that we would be willing to let you put those things in our heart and we'd be willing to take the steps trusting that you will put us in a place where we are strong enough, courageous enough to make those choices and to follow through. But here in this room, if you're not sure or you're sure you haven't ever said yes to Jesus and you know you need to, I ask you to pray this prayer with me right now. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. Like all men, I'm a sinner. And my sin has separated me from you. And I have earned from that eternal separation, and yet you so love me that you sent Jesus to pay that price on the cross for me. And when he died and rose again, he redeemed me. He paid my price. And because of that, I say yes to that gift. I know that the part you give me is a choice. A choice to say yes to that. And for that, I say yes. I say yes to Jesus as my Savior because I need saving. And I ask that you actually then cleanse my debt and forgive me and set me free from the things that have led me so strongly and so commonly to these foolish choices. And let me be somebody that really understands, that understands that you want me and you love me and that I'm safe in you. Please, have me today. Jesus as my Savior, but also as my Lord. As you've redeemed me, I give you my life and I ask you to make something beautiful with it now. As I hand myself to you, and Jesus, in your name, I just say, have me. In your name, Jesus, I pray. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. God, you've heard our prayers today. As we sing one last song and dismiss, I pray that you would so cleanse us, so encourage us now, that we could sing without reluctance. And I pray that you would radically have us leave here different, better, right with you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Oh